Hello, welcome to the Embody Podcast. This is Candace Wu, and today I have the absolute pleasure to introduce one of the most significant teachers in my life, Jim Kolakowski. He is my spiritual and yoga teacher, and by his very existence and his applied teachings, he's taught me the deeper meaning of Om. You know that sound, Om, that everything's truly possible, but at a level where I actually started to believe it. And he's also taught me how the universe works and how to understand my spirituality according to tantric and Vedic sciences. Through his teachings, I've been able to look at how something functions, who I truly am, how to heal at a deeper level, and to create from a place of freedom. I continually feel a level of integration and truer to my genuine self the more I practice what he has taught me. Jim has devoted the majority of his life to the study, preservation, and teaching of yoga, the Vedas, and the Vedic and Tantric sciences, and his extensive quest to understand the nature of the universe led him to the study of several rare and highly advanced systems of Tantra. He's the creator of the Darshan Method, a systematic approach to these philosophies and practices which can be applied to any aspect of life, producing exceptional results in physical health and personal development, which I've experienced myself. Jim is known for his unique ability to inspire others to achieve physical, spiritual, and emotional integration. And he's a published author, classical musician, amateur linguist, and a lifelong student of oriental medicine. And without further ado, enjoy this podcast with Jim. Okay, Jim. So good to have you. It's great to be here. In fact, it's always it's always a treat to be with you, Candace. I know a lot about you, but for our listeners, would you share what are you about and who are you? My favorite question. My name is Jim Kulikowski. And one of the things I think of most that I'm about is I've always been interested in understanding the fundamentals behind how things work, the what, why, and how of just about anything. But as I have grown up, I'm growing up. Um, understanding that in terms of the universe as a whole. And so I spent a lot of my life trying to understand, or since I can remember understanding the what, why, and how of things. And I've been applying that, looking into what, what makes things tick, how they work, what are they, why they do what they do, and then applying that and how to do anything. Yeah, that's one of the major teachings that I learned from you. You know, there's a lot of things I guess I've, I've, I was, I've been very interested since, since I was a kid. Um, and one of them was, was music. Music is one of my, my favorite things. And I grew up in North Dakota, which at the time was sort of rural, and we didn't have access to a lot of things that were other places. And I wanted to be a classical musician. So I ended up, I taught myself how to play the cello. And, and to do that required... A lot of deep study into the dynamics of the cello. How do you make a tone? What's the correct tone? What's, what's intonation? How do you make the best possible tone? How do you interpret music? And so all of these things I, I really looked into and I didn't have a lot to rely on in terms of other people's expertise or anything like that. So I just really went into it. And that, that was sort of, a I guess, one possible starting point for me. As I grew up, I was raised um, Roman Catholic, and my parents were very much into Catholic mysticism. My dad was actually Eastern Orthodox, and he converted to Roman Catholicism. And uh, Eastern Orthodox has a lot more esotericism, I think, um, than Roman Catholic tradition. And he brought a lot of that into what we were raised with as a faith. And um, I'm not, I don't consider myself Catholic. However, I think that experience gave me a, a basis to really inquire into spirituality. And I think that spirituality has become the central focus of my life. And when I say spirituality, I'm not equating that with religion, of course. I'm equating it to a definition that I give, which is um, a person really looking to understand who and what they are in relationship to the universe they inhabit. What I found is that those two things are actually synonymous. They're the same thing. I basically have spent a good portion of the last few years looking into this topic and actually languaging it. And um, I've actually spent more than half my life now that I think about it doing that, but languaging um, concepts that give us a roadmap to understanding who and what we are in relationship to the universe. I guess that's sort of what I'm about. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. <laughs> when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do, I know this sounds silly, but I would take a bath and 
our house, you could hear everything in every room, but I would take a bath. For some reason, I thought once the door was closed, nobody could hear me. And I'd start teaching people things. Like imagine I was teaching like a class, different things like um, just about any topic I could think of, like how to read or I don't know why, but it was just sort of a natural thing for me to teach. And I think that was one of the first things I wanted to do was be a teacher. Then I wanted to be a rock star and an actor because I got inspired by 80s music, I think, at some point. But Didn't you do that? <laughs> what, what? Be a rock star? Oh, um, I, there was a brief stint where I was in a band, a punk rock band, and we did sort of like Nirvana cover tunes. I played the cello in it. And then I did go-go dancing on the side when I, because not all of the pieces required cello. So um, that was fun. <laughs> I got to be in a cage. And <laughs> Now, this I did not know, but I just had this feeling about you being a rock star some, yeah. somehow. I don't know if that counts as a rock star, but it was fun. So <laughs> it was the 90s, early 90s. I've heard you recount this story a couple of times about uh, how you got into yoga. My background in these philosophies that I come up with are based in, in the Vedic philosophies, which, which yoga is a part of. Um, so I'll clarify that and maybe I can get into that as I tell the story. But originally, I, as I mentioned, I was from North Dakota. And one thing I've always loved about it is very removed from the rest of society in a way. it was It's always been its own sort of world. It's always a little bit behind. It's kind of a different way people act, a different culture. When I was a late teenager, I woke up one morning and I just had to learn yoga. I didn't know what yoga was. I wanted to learn it. I I thought it was sitting in a corner and making noises like mantras or something. I didn't know what it was, but I started calling places like the YMCA and asking them if they had yoga classes. And the response I got was like, yoga, <laughs> click, and they'd hang up on me. And, and I, I, didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know what to do. So I, I actually went to the library and I got every book I could on, on yoga. And I found a book called Yoga in 28 Days by Richard Hittleman. And it's a book, it must have been published in the 1960s, and it has these sort of 1960s looking uh, pictures, black and white photographs of uh, women, essentially, and leotards doing these poses, which, not to be down on the book, but nowadays we'd consider them poor form. But um, the, the book was, was so awesome, and it, it, it spoke to me because it gave a systematic plan in 28 days. By the end of it, you'd be able to do a yoga practice. And what they were referring to were actually asanas. That's just an, an aspect or an access point to yoga philosophy. Um, the asanas are the poses. I actually later on got more books by the same author about the philosophies of yoga, and I, I, I didn't understand any of them. They made no sense. And I kept practicing, though, the asanas diligently, and then about six months later, I reread one of the books and it made perfect sense. It was just all of a sudden there. And that's where, where I started with the whole yoga philosophy. Eventually I ended up living in a couple different ashrams and, and studying the philosophy. And um, I came across Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, Transcendental Meditation Movement, and I became involved in that and some of the techniques and advanced techniques. And what I really liked about what Maharshi Mahesh Yogi had done is he had taken yoga philosophy and actually codified it and systematized it in a way that actually made sense. It was relatable. He had an idea to make yoga into, uh, or it's referred to as yoga, but the meditation system, he had a way to try to integrate it with principles of modern science and physics. And he had done an amazing amount of work with amazing amount of people, including physicists and so forth, to correlate these different concepts together. And what was so interesting is that he created something that was just made so much sense. It was so interesting and, and very inspiring to me. That became the basis of a lot of work I did. I'm not involved with that organization currently, but a lot of the basis of where I started my work began in the way that I, I observed how Maharshi Mahesh Yogi had systematized this philosophy. I studied a number of other different esoteric techniques. Some of them were very esoteric and sort of uh, secretive and for, for good reason, um, the more I learned. But what I've done with this is actually to really go very, very deeply into these philosophies and actually attempt to unravel what they're actually about and then make them actually understandable and a way to actually get there. And I feel as though, again, I've used the, you know, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi's template as a, as a starting point and I've taken it to what I believe is a much deeper level. Not that he didn't have access to that by any means. I don't want to say that. I have utmost respect for that man. Where the paradigm was and the collective consciousness at that time was, I don't think would have allowed to go much deeper. And so I've, I've taken some, some of the, the languaging, expanded on the languaging that he used 
and brought in a lot more based on my Sanskrit studies and my studies in the Vedic, Vedas and the Vedic literature itself and the tantric philosophies to actually build a whole new paradigm around that. So that's basically where uh, the philosophies I use to describe the what, why, and how of creation and who and what we are. Yeah, I, I can see the, the echoes of his process and yours. There's been so many yogis that have brought this knowledge to the West. I mean, Paramahansa Yogananda, Swami Vivekananda before him, um, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi really, really did. I think we owe him a lot in terms of um, more than I think he gets credit for in terms of bringing this very simple aspect of that philosophy to us. I feel like what I would like my work to be about is actually really expanding that and taking it much deeper and farther as as our collective consciousness and our paradigm evolves or hopefully facilitate the evolving of the, of our paradigm, which I feel personally would be a great thing. So. Yeah, absolutely. That knowledge is so important. Yeah. And I'm wondering what concept or what teaching do you feel is really important to you now? One thing I've always that I've always been really connected to and fascinated by is is something we've talked about before in terms of it's a Vedantic philosophy principle. It's actually become kind of popularized in pop culture, I guess. You, you talk about um, how's it called law of attraction and this and that. And I I don't language it the same way. To me, it's, it, it occurs even much more subtly, but the fact that our, uh, that the universe, until we, our consciousness is not identified with our limited aspects of what create or construct our personality, the idea that the universe or our universe is an expression of what we created ourselves, we created moment to moment. And the more I look into this, the implications of this are, they, they just, they're, they're unfathomable. There's actually a quote in the Bhagavad Gita or a, a little snippet of a verse that says the laws of karma are unfathomable. What's interesting to me is as sentient beings, whether you're an amoeba or you're a cat or a person, we're all actually participating in the process of creation and its evolution in a seemingly non-normal way. Um, what I mean by that is we're sitting at a table and this table is made of, of matter and the matter is actually in a state of karma, but it actually decomposes or it changes in a regular fashion. We can predict how long the half-life of this, of the contents of this table are. So it, it, the universe is actually very orderly, but we as, as humans or as other sentient beings, we are actually able to seemingly make changes that seem random. And the universe then occurs as a, as a, as a, as a diverse set of karmas happening on infinite levels. And I, I think as um, sentient beings, that's our purpose is to actually contribute to that, to actually evolve to where our identification isn't with our personalities, but actually with the larger consciousness of the universe as a whole. And therefore we have even a more access to be able to influence that karma or, or, or create different types of karma and also our our intention changes at that point, which is a whole nother topic. But So how does one come in alignment with the collective consciousness? There's two things. First of all, collective consciousness, and I'm, I may have incorrectly stated this, but collective consciousness is a term I use to define sort of the collective paradigm that or agreement that a group of people, and, and in our case, the human race, or a group of beings, the human race, subscribes to, right? We have certain laws or that we all agree on, and then with our, in our individual cultures or or our, even our companies, corporations, we have individual collective consciousnesses. But I think what you're asking is, is sort of the, the consciousness that fundamentally underlies everything. And how one gets to that, that's actually the practice of yoga. That's really honestly what the practice of yoga aims at is allowing an individual, which is actually an expression, an individual expression of pure consciousness, which itself is undifferentiated, through um, the mechanism of, of what allows us to be, to seemingly be individuals, our personalities, which is based on a collection of, of impressions, which are based on past actions, things we learn, memories, which give rise to our beliefs and gives rise to our actions ultimately. But in yoga, what we're doing is we're actually transcending that. We're, we, we normally consciousness, which itself, it doesn't have a form. It only knows the form or takes on the form of what it identifies with or what it's projected upon to. And normally, it's, as I said, it's projected onto those beliefs or the, those, we call them sanskars, which create the beliefs, which give us all the action that we commit. 
Um, and those are not a bad thing, but what we do in, in terms of yoga is we, we take the conscious identification away from that and we invert it onto itself. And it starts to know, wow, what I thought was me, the awareness that I thought was all these preferences, beliefs, ideals. And what I think is free will is really not free will. It's just, it's just acting or reacting from those beliefs. What yoga does is it actually takes that consciousness back on itself and there's an opportunity to realize to identify with consciousness rather than those beliefs. That's yoga and that's the philosophy. Now, there are many ways to do that. There are asana. Yoga asana is, is potentially one tool to do that if it's done correctly. It can give people access to uh, experiences of witnessing in terms of where they are just the consciousness. They're not involved directly in the body. That's one way to look at it, but also different types of meditation, different meditation techniques where that actually cause one to move past or to not necessarily identify with those sanskaras and actually identify with consciousness itself. So Jim, when you say creativity, I think what you're talking about is true freedom, freedom of choice. Can you say more? Yeah, I think that's a fundamental concept of, of this. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we think we have free will, but actually we're acting out of regular patterns. We're acting based on our past experiences. Um, something happens to us and we react and then we think that outside thing made us did it, but really it was based on an experience that happened um, that's deep in our subconscious at this point, or maybe not even that deep in our subconscious. But the fact is we aren't choosing. And what we're aiming for in my mind is what, what one of the results of, of yoga is to actually come to a place of real choice. And how that in my mind works is that people start talking about these concepts like sanskaras and and so forth is that we have to get rid of them. Um, I've seen an article like a while back in Yoga Journal I was saying, oh, we have to get rid of how to get rid of those nasty sanskaras. And there's really no such thing. Um, everything is a sanskara. Every law of nature is a sanskara. Nature itself is evolving and every principle, everything that makes whatever it does do what it does, even how a tree grows and this and that is all based on sanskara. So we can't, it's not in our interest to actually get rid of sanskaras. It's in our interest to transcend the identification with them, okay? What I mean by that is, is we're actually looking to not be subject to them, not be reactive. Instead, actually be able to stand back and look at a full range of potential sanskars as a toolbox, and I can affect this choice, and I can choose this, which will create this action, does that make sense? So it's a little more conscious than actually just bam, here it is. And that's how it works. So that you have all the sanskaras as a tool out of all the possibilities and you're just choosing which one will, will be effective for what you are desiring or yes. you are wanting to create. Yes. In, um, in fact, in um, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, um, uh, it's a big thing in the yoga world that I mean, everyone talks about a few of the sutras. They usually you know, a couple from the first chapter, a couple from the second chapter, and then they don't ever go into the, the last chapters. But one of the things, if you start really looking into that, you'll notice that in the third chapter specifically, it begins to start to deal with some of these things we're talking about. It starts to deal with actually utilizing some of these laws of nature, these which are in turn, they are they can be called the sanskara, and actually being able to use attention properly to create particular results. And um, the way it's looked at or described is quite esoteric, and it actually is, but when you start to actually break it down to a level of just consciousness touching on a law of nature and enlivening it, it actually is quite simple, right? Because that's all we're doing anyway. I mean, I'm sitting here in a body that's made of minerals and all kinds of things that are just not even really me, they're just matter. And I'm actually causing them to do things by using my attention and my consciousness through all these different mechanisms, like my mind and my attention and so forth. And then my actual physical body and which actually makes the body move. It makes talk, I'm making language, I'm making, I'm communicating, but I'm basically just touching certain laws of nature and that's how it happens. Just to rewind a bit, can you say more about what sanskaras are? Uh, yes, so sanskara, um, I believe this is from a Sanskrit roots song uh, to bring together kara, kara, create. So to, to create with, I believe is what they mean. And um, basically, like I said, they're, they're basically these impressions or vibrations, energetic tendencies, uh, which are 
in my mind, create the universe. Now, as ascendant beings, whether you're an amoeba, whether you're a cat, whether you're a human, we all have the potential for action, for to create conscious action. For example, an amoeba has a limited amount of things it can do. It can, I don't know what amoebas do, but let's just say it, it eats, it knows how to look for food or whatever it does, however it eats. And, and then at some point, that it learns that if it does this, this happens. It does this, it, it starts to make a storehouse of, of impressions or memories based on the experiences or the actions it creates. Um, eventually, and this is again in Vedic philosophy, but if you think about it, it makes sort of sense. Uh, it makes quite a bit of sense actually. Um, the amoeba eventually dies, that living organism dies. And what's left is consciousness and what it's learned in that lifetime this storehouse of of these impressions or what it can do so it's that consciousness and coupled with these impressions or sanskaras moves into another organism or is born again and as as it becomes more and more complex it exhausts being an amoeba it can't do that anymore because it's sort of exhausted that it, there's no purpose it so it becomes a, another higher organism eventually we become humans and i don't think humans are necessarily the most intelligent of animals but what's interesting with us is that we have an ability to actually step back and separate ourselves from, and, and a witnessing quality we can actually we're not we, we have an ability to actually watch ourselves do something we have the ability to evolve that way it's not really about intelligence it's about we can we can step back and say whoa i can actually i have a choice or i can potentially make a choice i don't have to do that and number one i think yoga is really developing that but number two um the sanskaras then um at the level of a human being though because we are more advanced quote unquote um being is they're much more they've been evolving over lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes we have the same sanskars as the amoeba but we don't necessarily affect those anymore or they're affected they're just become part of our habits but um we all are a collection of those things and those those things become our preferences our beliefs our personalities the things we hold near and dear are really just based on past action they're not even really real and they're not really us but we identify with those and and I think that's why they get a bad rap. People say, get rid of them because all our suffering actually comes from that. And all our joys too, actually. It's not that they're bad. It's just at some point, we kind of get tired of having to be subject to them. Again, to go back to what separates humans from animals, other animals, I'm going to say. And I, I don't believe this is 100% true, but um, generally, um, I'm very close to my dog. And I, I do believe she's smarter than most people I've met. She's incredibly intelligent. But one thing is she just, I noticed very clearly, she acts from a very instinctual level. It just happens. She, something happens, she gets, she just goes into a mode. And not in her defense, most people do the same thing, but we as humans have an ability to not. We have an ability to stop. Oh, I don't need to do that. So that's what I wanted to make clear about that distinction. But um, So on a day-to-day -day level, Jim, how do you incorporate this into your life? There's a lot of a lot of ways. Um, I guess you could answer that question. I, first of all, it's a good idea to have realization of this. I mean, it's one thing to understand it intellectually, but to actually experience it, and that's what the practices of yoga are for. And I want to make something very clear when I talk about yoga. I'm not talking about something that came out of India. I'm not talking about a yoga class that you go to at you know a studio. I'm I'm actually talking about any practice that allows for an individual to understand who and what they are in relationship to the universe they inhabit. So that, that's a broad thing. Now, one thing about we're in, we're in the United States is we do this, um, I know you go all over, but one of the, the great things about this country is we, you know, we are in a place where we can actually explore a lot of different, a lot of these higher concepts. We, we, we are lucky enough to, unfortunately we don't. Um, Mother, as Mother Teresa said, you know, we have a, the spiritual poverty here is, is a lot worse than a lot of the poverty in India, but we have opportunities to. And fortunately, there's a lot of a lot of people out there that that offer different ways to do this. A, a lot of different, um, you know, some of the people I know, like Byron Katie, um, and her work is is a form of yoga. There are a lot of um, I, I'm not really familiar with like Tony Robbins, um, but I know he does a lot of things that breakthrough where people break through their their limiting beliefs which are basically identification with sanskaras we have a lot of opportunities so I, I think it's in my opinion important that someone pursue a type of yoga practice that allows them access to this that's uh, maybe not a, a very specific thing but I, I think anything which allows someone to to actually evolve beyond 
their limitations. This is the big question. Who and what are we? <laughs> um, well, uh, that question could have a lot of different levels. Um, on, on a fundamental level, we are just consciousness. We're consciousness trying to know itself in every possible form, every Consciousness by nature is singular, but we are all an individual universe and all. And, and I think of us in terms of like, and if you look at the, the universe, the cosmos in terms of cosmology and astronomy, we're actually all, each of us is like a vortex. We're like a black hole We're we're actually a collapse of the field onto itself so that it, this all pervading field appears as an individual thing and that individual thing is our attention that attention is utilized and directed through a mechanism of experience called the mind and the mind is actually set within a a, um, a more gross aspect of attention called energy we call it chi in, in certain systems or prana and yoga and other things too which give us a fundamental framework of a physical body so i think you know, those I'm kind of describing a, a particular range of, of, of a human from consciousness to our physical body. But at the fundamental level, we really are consciousness and we really are here in my mind to to experience ourselves as consciousness and then ultimately contribute to the evolution of the universe as a whole, as I said before. So um, maybe that's, again, a, a little bit roundabout way to answer, but that's in my mind who and what we really are. And the, the answer to that question in my mind is actually experiential because once once one is experiencing consciousness, and everybody has to some extent, um, they realize that that's really what we are. Yeah, and so when we experience ourselves as that and we support the evolution of the whole universe, I've studied the yugas with you. In that cycle, once we come back to truth, sat, well, is it also evolution to, to go back towards Kali? Okay, um, so you're, you're talking about yugas in term of cyclical, which is I just want to make this clear that is not a that is not a um, typically w the way it's thought of. Um, I think the way it's thought of now is a linear process, but we also know that time is not linear, and um, these yugas were actually, as you stated it, I believe that's correct. I believe that it's a it's a cyclical thing, and everything evolves in a cycle in um, Chinese cosmology they have what's called the I Ching, which is a, a set of probabilities in which something happens in a cycle. Anything that exists, where I said before, is existing in karma. And karma has a beginning, middle, and end, right? It has a cycle to it. And and what you're talking about are yugas, stages within that cycle. And you're talking about a very large, broad thing. Well, what happens in my in my experience is that um, the process of evolution is once a cycle is complete, it starts out where it evolves, it goes away from itself and it comes back to itself again and it's evolved into something else. So it starts over and it, it with, with a new set of ideals and a new set. Now, as um, that's the nature of, of creation. It does keep starting over. It goes from Sat to Kali, back to Sat to Kali, back to Sat. And each time it's a new aspect of, of the same thing, a new iteration, a new variation. When we actually, in my experience, identify with consciousness, we are actually transcending that cycle. We're sort of stepping back and seeing that cycle for what it is, the beauty that it is, the awe that it is, and actually that that's not what we need to be. Again, because otherwise it just keeps going. It keeps going and it keeps going again, right? And, and that's, I think, why we do evolve uh, out of that is because at some point, ascending beings, we, we, we get bored with it. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so that... The, the you guys in that cycle is part of the karma. Yeah, it's, it's a cycle of karma, a, a grand cycle of karma. Yuga means, uh, you guys referring to an age, a really long span of time. Kulpa, it's a word, it's a long, a large span of time. And we're actually, um, they're just kind of a larger aspect of cycle. I mean, you can take these cycles of creation down to the most uh, minute scale, um, nanoseconds, things popping in and out of reality, to a very large scale of dealing with a collective of of cosmos and universes and you know, things like yeah. that. So That makes sense because the way I experience my healing and my sanskaras, my belief sets, is that some of them never go away, as you said, but I experience them differently and then I go another round. Yeah. And then I like come to this place of more balance or a new 
place in myself, and then I come around again. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about too is is really. I mean, it's it's not a bad experience. It's kind of like you're you're on a nice ride, and you you're, you're on a ride, and it's you're riding a wave um, from its you know inception to completion, and you see a new iteration of yourself. You know. It's like I always think of classical music, you know, where you know these they write this theme and then they write all these variations on it. And it's the same thing over and over, different with the same fundamental idea and different iterations. And that's sort of what what I think uh, what we are as 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 individual universes and then the universe as a whole. So, Jim, one major thing I've learned from you is that let's say we're acting out of fear or we're acting out of anger or from a certain belief set. You've always said to me, "That's okay." But wouldn't you just rather know what you're doing and who you are at the time? Like, wouldn't you rather know where you're acting from? And that's just released a lot of shame and helped me go deeper. And so it brings up the topic of morality. Would you talk about that? Morality, well, I, I tend to think I don't believe in morality. I just think there's action and consequence. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, morality is just, it, it is a construct that we've, you know, that, that is created for particular reasons. And I think it's a part of a larger sanskara of the collective consciousness. We've learned that certain things are helpful actions to society as a whole to be sustained and certain things aren't. And, and those change over time as cultures evolve and things going in and out of fashion in terms of, well, that's a larger topic. But the problem is, is we, we tend to get confused because this is, this gets pretty deep, but I think to transcend morality is also another step in this process. And it involves really being personally responsible for one's actions. And I, I think that we tend to, you know, favor morality because in my opinion of intellectual laziness, we, we don't necessarily want to be accountable for making choices. Well, that's just, that's the right thing. That's the wrong thing to do. And it very well could be the, an action that's actually more evolutionary or less evolutionary, or we can predict oftentimes certain outcomes. I, I think that's a better way to look at it in my mind. And I guess that's a moral judgment of saying it's a better way, but I think it's a more effective way um, to look at it rather than just saying something's right or wrong. But that path to do that also requires that an individual makes choices and be very, be very responsible for, for their, the outcomes of their actions and so forth. And when we really start looking at ourselves and really start being conscious of, of what we're choosing, um, personal responsibility is a huge part of it. And I think that's why a lot more people don't evolve as far as they could um, necessarily, or they give up on the path they're on is because of that. And I think morality in a sense is, becomes the default for action. In my mind, actually, that's why people use morality. As far as morality, I'm not an expert on it. I mean, I, I know, um, as I mentioned, I, I did grow up uh, Roman Catholic. And the older I get, I realize I, I don't know much about what is taught in the church. I just know what I was taught. And there was a lot of morality. There was a lot of right and wrong, good or bad. I mean, it's, it's interesting for me. I still, I still look at things and I still uncover where I have value judgments or beliefs about it. It's, it's interesting. It's an interesting process. I think it really doesn't matter. There's more just action and consequence. And the more aware we get, we start to actually become aware of our of our choices and we become responsible for them. When I heard you talk about this topic before, Jim, one of my first questions was, then how do you know what to do? And I remember you saying, well, I check to see if I like myself. And I think we can understand that on many levels. Can you talk about that? We actually are a lot more aware than we give ourselves credit for. Uh, I'm sure in the work you do, you know how to, you help people to actually feel the the sensations in their physical body that go along with the emotional counterparts or the, the things they're doing. I think we actually, we do actually have the ability to be aware. I think it's, it's inherent in people, whether we want to admit it or not. We live in a culture where we 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 give excuses for everything. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. We say, I drink because I'm an alcoholic. I don't really have any choice in it. I, I did that because she made me do it. She made me mad. We have all these ways in which we justify action. And again, this is, I think the, the key to it is really, really bringing it back to personal responsibility and accountability for one's actions. Is this action really, does this feel good when I do it? Does this feel, and when I say good, does it, do, do I feel, do I feel expansive? Do I feel like it brings me into connection with my surroundings or with, 
in, internal integration even is a good place to start? Do I feel, or does, does part of my body feel bad or does part of me um, feel not connected to the rest or does, do I, does that feel separate, create a, a sensation of separateness? We all have the ability to actually feel that and know it, whether we actually live like that. I mean, it can be a process to get there and whether we actually do that or not is, is um, another thing. But I think, like I said, I believe I answered that one time I said to you, um, do I like myself when I'm that way? You know, yeah, I can go out and I can, you can do whatever you want really, but do I like the way I felt knowing that seeing what, what the results of my action are, if it's something that would be, you know, I go out and hit somebody or something. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, we really don't like feeling like that, I don't think. I say this with the utmost respect. I, I know people are doing their jobs. I think, you know, a lot of people in the military, they come back from these battles with PTSD and they have to do things that may actually be incongruent with their beliefs in the first place. And I'm not saying that that's wrong because I, I, I'm not, I've never been in the military. I don't know what, um, I, I realize that that there are missions that there, there is a, there's a time and place for this within it. It's not my realm, but I think people struggle with that. And I think it's, it's very difficult to reconcile. So um, humanity as a whole, I think one day we'll, we'll all be in such a state of integrity that we won't need that. But, but in the time being, that's a, where I believe you can actually observe um, what I just said in action is people doing their job and they really are not even congruent with the actions. Yeah. It's like having to separate so many parts yeah. of themselves. Yeah. in order to do that. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Anything that creates a, a, um, an idea of separation within a person is, you could say that um, an in, in disintegration internally could be thought of as an action that might not be evolutionary, actually isn't evolutionary. Their full attention isn't behind it. Their full, they aren't, they aren't integrated with that action. And that to me is, is a sign that it's probably not quote unquote, correct action for that moment. So I guess one way to look at it is to think of in terms of, is this action create a sensation of integration or disintegration? And when I say, do I like myself? When I do that, I'm, I guess I'm referring to um, that, that feeling of disintegration or disharmony between all aspects of myself. Okay, Jim, let's talk about Tantra. <laughs> Everyone's favorite subject. Um, so Tantra is... Um, it's a misunderstood subject from my point of view, and I'm, I, I can't say I'm an expert. I've, I've practiced a number of different Tantra techniques, but I want to make this clear. Tantra is a, is a big field. In my mind, uh, Tantra means it's referring to the esoteric practices of yoga. They're, they're, again, it's, you could almost say it's another word for yoga. It's these techniques that allow an individual to transcend individuality and arrive at the identification with consciousness. Tantras are, again, there are, there are so many different paths for this. Generally, it's associated with sexual acts. And I don't know much about a lot of what is out there. I, I don't want to uh, be disrespectful towards it, but I think a lot of what's out there is more um, on the level of, of gratifying um, sensory experience through sex. And that's a different topic there. That, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can... You can, it, like sex, like anything else, you can take it to its utmost level. I mean, you can do that with anything. You can do that with cooking <laughs> if you wanted to. You can find the, the ultimate, you know, recipe for chocolate chip cookies, the best orgasmic cookies you could have. <laughs> um, the same with, with sex, you can take it to the utmost level. Um, but the thing about Tantra is that the, the experience would be something that is actually allowing up someone to actually move beyond um, the experience of an individual. It's an expansive experience. And oftentimes I think it's confused, the, the state of orgasm is confused with that, not because uh, it, it could be an expansive experience and generally is, but what generally happens in an orgasm is people are all the different aspects of, a, of, a, of an individual become integrated into, for a very short period of time, into a very specific um, direction of attention. All the different, everything, comes together and, and into a point and makes a very strong experience. Tantra, from that point of view in, in sex, I believe is using that experience consciously for something else, not necessarily for energy being released from the body or the, the essence of the individuals released at that point, generally if procreation is involved or the aim or not necessarily the aim, but 
Um, but in terms of, of, of tantric techniques that involve sex, from my understanding, it's taking that same strong direction of attention and actually moving it to a place of uh, reversing that direction of energy so that the, the, the individual, it, it goes beyond sensory experience. It goes beyond individuality. So those are, those are actually kind of esoteric and, and, and I think complicated or physically complicated things to master. Um, there are many forms of Tantra that involve different types of very complicated pranayamas or breathing in which different energy channels of the body are cleansed and utilized to make different things possible. Um, there's the Chinese, I, I'm very familiar with this, um, um, many of the Tantras were preserved in China in the form of the Qigongs, many of which are very secret, secretive, and the Taoist practices. I know some people would argue with about that, but I really do believe that's where most of them are preserved. Um, if you go to India today, I don't think you find so much of these original Tantras. Um, it just the knowledge has been lost or changed and, and this and that. But I, I believe Tantra is such a wide scope. It could be a number of different practices. Um, some involve sex, but a very small of them involve sexual um, copulation or whatever you want to call it. So... What's out there again, I just, it'd be nice if people would be, in my opinion, more respectful towards the, the practice and the arts of Tantra in terms of, again, you know, it's one thing to, to make a, a sensory experience more intense. And that's one thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I think that's a separate thing. I would like people to maybe, if I want to know anything about Tantra, is, is to have an open mind about it and understand that it encompasses anything that's going to allow an individual to transcend their individuality rather than just um, a way to, to create better sex. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that. And I actually think some of the Tantra practices that I'm aware of that involve, again, that's such a wide range, but that involve, um, any use of sexual energy, they should be very well respected because it starts to, at that point to get very powerful and actually in some ways can be physically dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So it's good to really to have respect for that system. Certain practices involve developing and cultivating the sexual energy and the essence which precedes that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I think in, in yoga or Ayurveda, they might call it ojas, right? There's a certain level of a, of a refined part of the phys physical, physicality called ojas, and it's a refined aspect of an individual that sort of contains everything of that individual. And that is actually due to certain types of practices that involve, I guess what we could say, they, they look rather sexual, involve taking that essence and actually transforming it into a very refined form of energy which is in a sense correlates to the individual's consciousness moving from a gross level of essence to a refined energy ultimately to um, something we call soma which is a uh, most refined form of that individual and that process could be dangerous physiologically because some of the practices that I know can elevate the blood pressure. They could cause part of it causing stroke. Um, for the men, we do certain things uh, that might actually be dangerous <laughs> to the genitals themselves if you don't know what you're doing um, without saying too much about that. One thing that happens too or can happen is, is these practices, any yoga practice or tantric practice, particularly these ones I'm talking about, create a strong level of physiological integration, a strong sense of physical integration, but also physiological. And when I talk about physiology, I'm, again, I'm, I'm referring to that that full range of, of, of a human being from the most subtle level consciousness or fundamental level to the gross level, which is the physical body. But all those parts coming together. And when that happens, um, if an individual isn't ready for it, it, it can be sort of mind-blowing in a sense, right? It could be too fast, right? And um, I, I always think of, and this is off topic, I'm not, I'm not saying Eckhart Tolle did, did these practices I'm talking about, but in his book, The Power of Now, which I only read the introduction because I'm a really bad reader, but he talks about how he had this transcendental experience and he, he basically had this experience uh, where he transcended himself and for several years he was on a park bench. And Byron Katie also describes these, and I, I love these stories. They're, her stories are just, they're utterly hilarious, some of them. They're, they're so great. But the, my point is, you know, under the improper circumstances, someone may not understand because they, they're not themselves anymore, and it may take them a while to come back to, as in Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle talks about, it took them a while to come back to, quote-unquote, reality where they could function normally. They knew how to deal with this new state of awareness they were in. And some of these practices can, can really 
accelerate that process so quickly that it could also be uh, very challenging for the individual. It could be painful emotionally. It could be actually, um, it could just be too much and, and so forth, as well as physically problematic, I think, too. So That makes sense. And it seems that that really, that respect that you were talking about for the practices and for what you're doing, knowing what you're doing, really connects up with having a good teacher or that teacher-student relationship that's been in traditions like lineage. Can you speak about that? Yeah, that's actually a really important thing. And I think, I mean, we've really changed how we view that. We actually, um, the word guru has kind of a negative connotation oftentimes. And I often see a lot of people like, you're your own guru and blah, 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 and and this and that. And I I think that's actually really a true thing. Ultimately, we are our own guru. We are our own teacher. However, um, most people can't teach themselves. I mean, I was able to teach myself cello, but most people can't do that. Um, I'm not saying I'm smarter. There's a lot of things I I can't figure out myself. I have to bring in someone else to teach me. Um, but it's helpful. Like if you're learning to drive a car to have someone show you how to drive, it doesn't mean you have to submit all power to them, but it's good to have a good teacher. And I believe really good teachers are are not as plentiful as one would think. So I, I think lineages are important. Uh, where where the person is really, I think that could be just as simple as someone being very set in what they're teaching, very knowledgeable. Um, oftentimes that comes through lineages. I believe teachings evolve through the lineages. So, I mean, I come from a lineage that goes back um, quite a while. And um, I'm sure the practice has evolved from teacher to teacher. My teacher evolved it much differently. I think I have taken other takes on it too. Um, but ultimately the, the, the fundamental techniques and the message are the same. And that's important because oftentimes, um, you know, someone comes along, well, I just do it this way. And then all of a sudden it isn't the technique. It isn't doing the same thing. So I think lineages can be very important. And I think teachers are very important too. Um, at some point, again, we all break away from our teachers. We all come, uh, we all become personally responsible for, for ourselves and our actions. And I think there's a, there's a point where that happens on, on paths, and I, but I, I do think lineages, and even even to some extent, um, this is not where I'm at, but I think for some people, the religion fulfills that. I think a lot of times, and I don't want to go off on religion, but it, it, a lot of them have fallen short in terms of they become so exclusive. And even systems and techniques and lineages have become that way, where this is, this is the best way, this is the only way. Um, all paths, whatever they are, trying to teach always end up at the same source, which is consciousness at the end. Some are just faster than others. Some are more effective in doing this. Some are more effective in that. But ultimately, everything's leading towards one thing, the realization of oneself as consciousness. So given all of this really important knowledge, it's been so important in my life. You're human. I struggle with all the things we talked about. I mean, I I really do struggle with personal responsibility. I mean, there was a definite point in my life where I realized, wow, once I know this, I can't pretend I don't anymore. Oh, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's, it, that kind of goes with that, that question you asked about, um, you know, I was talking about, you know, when something happens too fast. And I, I don't know if it happened too fast for me, but there, there are certain points along that way. And it still happens where there, I reach a new level of that. And I feel like, wow, I, I really struggle with really being responsible for my choices and really being responsible for how and where I direct my attention. That's something I, I constantly, I, I, that's constantly there for me. And, and not, not that it's always a struggle, but there are times it, it you know, I, I really would, would like to do something. I'm like, well, that isn't really, I don't want to be responsible for the outcome of that. Also, I mean, this is very personal, but I've, I actually was part of a, of a system a tradition and I struggled with for actually a couple of years um, whether to continue my participation in that. I have almost respect for the system and the lineage and the teaching. Uh, it just, I reached a point where, again, this deals with, I was ready to to leave that. That uh, was very challenging for me because of all of the personal investment I had in that and all the identification I had with being part of that system and part of that lineage. And I, I always will be, there's, there's no way I always be very connected to it, but to actually be participating in the organization and and the dynamics of it was something I just felt like was not appropriate for me or anymore. 
Um, so that was something that's very recent for me. As I was going through, it was quite a struggle. So I, again, to me, that goes back to a level of personal responsibility because I didn't want to be, to leave, would require a certain level that I take responsibility and accountability for my life and my spirituality and that I didn't want to. So um, I think that's one thing I really, that, that I, that's really alive for me in terms of I work on that. And there's a gravity to karma. And, and it, I think, you know, evolution sometimes or when we, we evolve, and I use that word synonymous with the term involution which is something else but to me when we are we are moving we are we are evolving and and as I do that there's a there's a gravity to certain situations that ultimately don't they don't serve a purpose for me as an individual or me as abandoning individuality ultimately they don't serve that purpose so I yes there's a gravity to that and it is leaving that can sometimes be it's kind of like breaking up or a marriage or a divorce i think even our even our own personal habits or our personal aspects of our personality when we realize we no longer need to be subject to them again we don't have to abandon them they they're always there for our use if we want them but actually um sort of not being married to them so to speak anymore it can be actually in my opinion somewhat devastating. Yeah, yes, it does. Yeah. So I think it's something, you know, um, it's, it's a constant thing. And I think it's beautiful on one level. And it also involves for me personally, just a lot of really being present to myself and, and to, um, again, going back to what, what feels integrated or integrating and what doesn't feel integrating. And as I mentioned that before, in terms of morality, we're having that conversation. I, I think that that's a perhaps an infallible way to know if you're on the right path. Jim, it's been really fun talking with you. I've just been so grateful for you in my life. And uh, so it's super fun to have you on the show and I'd love to have you back again. Thank you, Candace. As I said before, it's a real pleasure. And I, I, I've actually, this is the second day in a row I've seen you, which never happens. <laughs> and so this is a real treat. Thank you for having me on. It's just always a blessing to be in your presence. Thank you, Jim. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this enriching conversation today. If this blew your mind or was challenging to take in, um, trust me, it took years and years and years to uh, begin to understand. And it all went somewhere on some level. And one day, just as Jim had said at some point that he just started to get it, um, I started to get it. So I want to share that Jim works with clients that include professional athletes, celebrities, government officials, and CFOs of major companies, as well as college and universities who have sought him out for his expertise. And he can be found at www.darshancenter.com, D-A-R-S-H-A-N, center.com. I appreciate you listening in and always welcome your ideas, your feedback, and requests. Before you go, you can sign up for the weekly podcast at candicewoo.com slash podcast or email me at embody at candicewoo.com. You can also find a newsletter, workshops, retreats, resources, meditations, and other healing tips at my website, candicewoo.com, where you can access the Facebook Embody group as well as uh, the newsletter. See you next time on the Embody podcast.